Professor Tom Kirkwood is Emeritus Professor at Newcastle University, where he headed the Institute for Aging and Health. He delivered the famous Reed Lecture Series and was awarded the CBE in 2009. Perhaps most famously, he put forward the disposable soma hypothesis, which postulates that the body has a limited budget of resources and energy. It must therefore make a compromise between living longer, longevity, and activities which will help it reproduce. Interestingly, he also invented the INR in the 80s, which is a blood test used every day by doctors to measure the clotting of a patient's blood. We talk about the disposable soma hypothesis, how calorie restriction may extend lifespan, anti-aging interventions which Prof Kirkwood finds interesting, and how you would design a trial to show the efficacy of an anti-aging drug. I hope you enjoy. Can you talk a little bit about one of your um, biggest ideas, which is uh, the disposable soma hypothesis? Can you explain it both to a five-year-old and then uh, maybe talk about how how it came to be? Well, the, the disposable soma theory is an explanation for why aging happens. Uh, it, it also, as well as answering the why question, it tells us quite a lot about how aging happens. And uh, I think that's really important because if we understand why something happens in biology, it gives us a feeling for the shape of the processes that are involved. Aging is a very complicated process uh, and trying simply to understand it from a phenomenological basis, uh, you know, sort of is quite hard work. So. So anyway, the, the, the essence of the disposable soma theory is to uh, note that if you look at the natural world, uh, animals, as a rule, don't live terribly long. Um, there are all kinds of hazards out there. They can get killed by a predator. They can die of starvation. They can get an infection. They can die of cold. So the, the profile of survival in the world is curtailed by the high level of risk that organisms are exposed to. And I was doing work at the time on the mechanisms that maintain and repair the body. Uh, and some of these are very expensive in terms of metabolism, in terms of the energy required. And I was thinking, well, you know, if the body is not going to last very long anyway, because you know, an accident is going to get you, how much should your genes be prepared to invest in the, the long-term maintenance of the body? Uh, soma is really sort of just... Uh, Greek for body, um, and it refers to all the parts of the body that are not part of the reproductive lineage, the germ cells. Um, and, and so, you know, sort of the, the idea dawned that um, actually, you know, what matters uh, in evolutionary terms is that the germline is maintained well enough to keep the lineage going from generation to generation. Each baby has to be born in tip-top condition with its time clock effectively reset to zero. But for the rest of the body, the soma, you know, all, all that you require is that it remains in good enough shape to last you through the period of time that you can expect still to be alive in, in your world environment. Um, and, uh, you know, if you think about that, uh, let's think of a mouse, for example. Um, you know, mouse, small animal exposed to many dangers. There have been excellent field studies of the survival of mice in the wild. And we know that, you know, 90%, probably more than that, of wild mice are dead before their first birthday. Um, so how long do mice live in the wild? Well, if only 10% of them make it past one year, very few of them will make it past 15 months, 18 months tops. So what does a mouse need uh, in terms of maintenance in its body? And the answer is it needs enough maintenance that it doesn't fall apart too quickly. No good if you fall apart at two months or three months. 
But if you fall apart at 18 months or 24 months, it's really not a problem. Uh, and actually, more than not being a problem, uh, it may allow you to free up resources uh, rather than spending them on better maintenance that you need. You could use those resources to do other things that may be more important for being competitive in the wild environment. So, you know, in essence, that, that is the disposable soma theory. It says you've got to look after your germline. You've got to look after your soma too. Um, we're, you know, we're not programmed for death. We're programmed for survival. But it was just never a high enough priority, you know, sort of in the wild environment to be programmed well enough to last indefinitely. The idea is very intuitive, I guess, looking back on it now, that your body has to make some kind of um, compromise between longevity and reproduction. Was there, what was the next stage once you'd, how, firstly, how did you, how did this even come to you? But then what was the next stage in giving meat to that idea? How it came to me, I, 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 I'm not an evolutionary biologist, but I had been introduced to the writings of one of Britain's great evolutionary biologists of the, the latter 20th century, a man called John Maynard Smith at the University of Sussex. And, and I liked his approach. He was always asking, why, why, why? It's like going back to childhood, you're asking. Yes, but why? Um, I had been introduced, this was moonlighting from my work on blood, um, but I had been, I'd had a chance encounter with a very eminent geneticist at the National Institute for Medical Research who was working on a problem to do with cellular aging. It was trying to understand why ordinary cells of the body can divide only a certain number of times and then stop dividing and seem to, you know, just give up the ghost, die. I was also interested in uh, a theory that was quite influential at the time, which was that cells might age because they make mistakes in building the important macromolecules on which life depends. So, um, you know, sort of they make mistakes in DNA, so you get somatic mutations. That could lead to an accumulation of trouble. But the particular idea I was working on was the idea that you would also make mistakes in protein synthesis. And we know that protein synthesis is not a precise, accurate process. A very significant fractions of proteins that are made in our cells are made with mistakes. Because if you think about how proteins are synthesized, it requires an incredible amount of molecular discrimination. You, you have the messenger RNA, which is being sort of uh, translated, and you've got the, uh, the transfer RNAs uh, come along and they plug the codons into the anticodons. Uh, and they carry amino acids at the end. And if, if all goes well, that amino acid gets incorporated into a new protein chain. And really, almost the most difficult job in the planet is uh, the work that's done by enzymes called the amino acyl tRNA synthetases. And what they have to do is make sure to put the right amino acid onto the, the right tRNA. And the possibility, it had been suggested, exists that if you make mistakes in building proteins, some of those proteins will be part of the machinery that will synthesize the next round of proteins and the next one and the next one. So you would generate a positive feedback and the whole system would sort of blow up or just you know come to failure. So it was a very interesting, very provocative idea. Um, and I had done some mathematical modeling of this, which showed that um, it could happen like that. It could It could lead to a kind of runaway error catastrophe, as it was called. 
But it's possible if you invested enough energy in proofreading uh, the actions of these enzymes or in protein clearance, in getting rid of your mistakes, that you would be able to maintain some stability over time. Uh, and that was the key because you would buy stability and you would buy stability by investing energy. And I started thinking then, you know, I'd just you know, been made aware of the distinction between germ cells and somatic cells. And I was thinking, okay, if we think about these almost in economic terms, you want to spend a lot on the stability of your germline, but how much do you want to spend on the stability of your soma? And literally it was sitting in the bath one cold February night in early 1977 that the idea just popped into my head of the disposable soma theory, which was to say, yeah, yes, evolution will prioritize uh, investment in stability of your germline, and evolution will have only limited interest in the stability of your somatic cells. So in its original formulation, the, the disposable soma theory was couched in those terms. But actually, it's a principle that, you know, when you think about it for a short while, you realize that it has quite wide ramifications. Um, and that got me interested in thinking about how natural selection acts on repair, regeneration, maintenance programs generally. It got me interested in thinking about how you could apply this evolutionary logic to understanding the way that the biology of aging is organized. Um, it tells you, well, it tells you several things. It tells you aging, aging and death, they're not directly programmed. Longevity is evolutionarily programmed because your longevity is set by how the genes regulate your maintenance and repair processes. And now we're learning, you know, some years later, a very bright graduate student of mine when I was in Manchester did a lovely experiment taking cells from little biopsies from mammals of different lifespans and showing that the cells from the longer lived mammals were much better at looking after themselves than the cells from the short-lived mammals. So the disposable summer theory also leads very naturally into a, an explanation of how different species have evolved different lifespans. And it's an explanation that makes a clear prediction that cells from long-lived species should be better at maintenance than cells from short-lived species. Uh, we buy our longevity in that way. And uh, that has turned out to be the case. It also tells us that, uh, you know, because faults can arise through quite a large number of mechanisms, it tells us that we should be prepared to discover that aging has multiple causes. Um, you know, I was the early part of my career on aging, and uh, this continues uh, to the present time. We find that there's a lot of uh, competition between different hypothesized mechanisms. So, you know, it used to be the case that you'd have people championing the mutation theory of aging, or you'd have people championing the idea that aging was all down to oxidative stress caused by attack by free radicals, or that it was down to errors in proteins, or this or that or the other. And what the disposable soma theory tells us is that it doesn't make sense to think of it in terms of this mechanism versus the other mechanism versus the other mechanism. It's not like sort of gangs in a school playground all trying to be dominant. They, they work together, they synergize, they interact. So when we, when we bring this logic to bear on the mechanisms of aging, 
we we recognize that there are multiple interacting mechanisms and i think one of the most challenging features of the science these days uh, you know sort of um, is how to structure research programs that take account of the multiplicity of fundamental causes and the potential synergy between those some of the some of the most exciting papers that i've been able to produce over the last 10 15 years have been exploring precisely this kind of complexity and networking of the different mechanisms of aging what's the most convincing counter evidence or rebuttal you've heard to the disposable soma theory um i think people people sometimes say you know sort of if a clear prediction is that if you if you if you shift the, the, the idea is involves a trade-off between longevity and reproduction um, uh, and it is possible with uh, some of the experimental anim animal systems nematode worms fruit flies to to interfere with and modify processes that regulate uh, for example reproduction um, uh, and uh, the where you, where you do that and you don't see the trade-off being realized so you you can you know you can change reproduction and you don't see a corresponding change in longevity um you know th th that that's an area that's generated quite a lot of discussion and i think uh, people see that as a challenge to the predictions of the disposable soma theory um i think it's very interesting i i think actually there are you know, sort of, there are reasons to be a little bit cautious about how we interpret these kinds of challenges because a manipulation that you make experimentally will not necessarily play into uh, a trade-off that may be an evolved trade-off in the sort of the, the the wiring of the biology underneath. But, but you know, I mean, it's for other people to take these ideas forward and and to see, you know, sort of to what extent they you know they stack up so um the uh, uh another challenge which i think is is more of an apparent challenge than a real challenge is uh, uh the observation uh that calorie restriction can extend the lifespan of uh, experimental animals um and uh, i think you know if you if you follow the the, the logic of the disposable soma theory um, you know, surely it's a bit odd uh, if, uh, if if you know, if aging kind of evolved through uh, you know, sort of competition for resources. If you if you restrict the availability of food and a mouse lives longer, uh, you know what's going on. Um, uh, so I think I think this is interesting. Um, uh, it was hypothesised, you know, sort of back at the end of the eighties, I think that. That maybe what's happening here is that if you restrict the food availability uh, to the animal, uh, what it will do is it will divert because it, it, during a famine is a bad time to try to reproduce, uh, you know, sort of at, at the normal level. So, so perhaps what the organism does is to recognise that it's a bad time to reproduce, and it switches resources in favour of maintenance in order to wait out the bad times uh, and to kind of when when the famine is over and the resources are restored uh, to, to kind of pick up and carry on now i mean that's a very interesting hypothesis and it, it's a 
it's a it's a sort of hand waving example of an evolutionary hypothesis. So, um, twenty years ago, uh, uh, another graduate student working with me, Daryl Shanley, who's now a, a reader in uh, uh, aging at Newcastle University, done very well in his uh, subsequent career. He and I, um, as part of his PhD, tried to test whether that evolutionary hypothesis could really hold water. Um, the thing about evolutionary ideas is that you can't rely on a verbal articulation of the hypothesis. It's actually got to work in terms of how natural selection operates. So you've natural selection is driven by numbers. <clears throat> so you have to take the hypothesis, you have to translate it into numbers that will allow you to determine whether the strategy you're suggesting could be an evolutionary adaptation actually results in an increase in fitness. Um, and it turned out that, yes, you know, it could work. Uh, it certainly could work for mice uh, and rodents. It could work for, you know, sort of many smaller animals, uh, you know, sort of where the food supply is unpredictable. Um, so it was possible to show that, you know, sort of the apparent challenge uh, to the disposable sermon theory was actually a doorway to a deeper level of understanding, which is that if the disposable sermon theory is about how you optimally allocate resources between growth and maintenance, then maybe if there is some sort of unpredictability and variability in the environment, some organisms may have evolved the capacity to flex their strategies to take account of the circumstances in which you find they find themselves. Uh, we see that, you know, sort of, for example, in nematode worms that are quite widely used as a, a model for studying aging. What happens to worms when they find themselves in a bad place where resources are scarce and stress levels are high is that they, they, they turn off the developmental process um, and they lock themselves into a, a very highly stress-resistant dispersal form called the Dawa larva, and the function of the Dawa larva is just to get the hell out of there and find somewhere better. <clears throat> so they they live quite a long time, and a lot of the experiments that have been done with nematode worms that first helped to identify some of the genes that have a regulatory impact on aging were done by discovering the genes that are associated with this change of game plan in the development of the worms. So. Um, it, what it what it says in terms of how we how we think about evolutionary uh, you know sort of ideas like the disposable soma theory is that you know they 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 have layers of implication and layers of complexity uh, that that may prove to be very informative um, but uh, so so those are some of the ways in which I think the the concept has evolved um, uh, it. it it's always great to be challenged. I mean, a theory is not a theory is not there to be proved. Um, you know, so uh, you know, if if someone was able to offer a, a you know a completely convincing knockdown theory or knockdown evidence to 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 totally squash the disposable soma theory, I uh, I would. A part of me would be absolutely delighted because that is how science works. A part of it would be a little bit sad because because I think it's I I think it has a lot of explanatory power, but I'm not you know I, I just don't feel that it's my role to to 
to fight off challenges and all comers. But I'd love to know if you have if you have challenges that you're aware of that you would like to put to me. Please go ahead. Um, as I say, my job is is not to defend it against attack. Well, I don't think I'm in any position to put any challenges forward. But I wanted to go back to the uh, calorie restriction in mice. Um, and that looking to um, improve longevity and lifespan in mice. Um, you mentioned that in the disposable soma hypothesis, or rather it was hypothesized that the reason for that is that during that period of starvation, uh, the mice might change game plan and decide to preserve the body rather than focus um, on reproduction. Would I mean, if you kind of apply Occam's razor, would a simpler explanation for that be that, you know, all of your biological processes just happen to slow down with calorie restriction and therefore the processes of aging perhaps slow down as well? Would Is that something that would be viable? It could be. Um, and, and I think, um, you know, sort of something I should have said is that this was an evolutionary hypothesis to explain uh, the phenomenon of calorie restriction. I think it's entirely possible that the phenomenon of calorie restriction could have explanations that have nothing to do with age, nothing to do with evolution, um, you know, and 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 for, may not require, you know, extension development of the disposable sound theory. It's possible it could be entirely mechanistic. One of the things that happens when you are short of food is that you strip down and recycle <clears throat> molecules. So you know, you you turn over your proteins more aggressively. You 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 know, sort of the processes of autophagy are, are, are really activated. Um, it's entirely conceivable that that uh, would, um, you know, sort of improve bodily health and well-being. The reason for, you know, being, remaining open to the possibility that this is some kind of adaptation is that quite early on it was found that with calorie restriction, um, Mice seem to genuinely to upregulate um, a lot of the maintenance systems. They 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 do they do seem to work better. Um, uh, the an, another feature that is consistent with that evolutionary hypothesis is that it suggests that mice should organize themselves to postpone their reproduction. Uh, and what you see is that. If you if you do expose mice to calorie restriction, then they retain fertility past ages at which normally fed mice <clears throat> would have become reproductively exhausted, would have you know would have become sterile. So so it's certainly it's certainly producing physiological effects that are consistent with what the hypothesis would propose. But but you know one should never be um, closed to alternative explanations, and I, uh, uh, yeah, and it may be it may be a, a bit of both. Um, it, it's entirely possible. Um, I think uh, one of the one of the things that makes me inclined towards thinking that it may have some genetic sort of evolutionary component to it is that. A very important experiment was done, which caused a stir at the time, but which seems somehow to get kind of overlooked. But uh, people took a large number of different strains of inbred mice, and they subjected all of these different strains of mice. So these were all mice. They were all in the same facility. They were all ex 
exposed to the same regimen of dietary restriction. <clears throat> and it was found that uh, half the strains showed an increase in lifespan through restriction, half showed a decrease. And actually, you saw the whole spectrum. You, you saw, you know, sort of a big increase. If you if you plotted from the the most extreme effect on one side to the to the the most extreme positive effect to the most extreme negative effect, and then you put all the intermediate effects, that you would get a kind of a, a triangular wedge shape, or two triangles. Um, uh, so, what that says is that if if it was just simply the physiological consequences of having less, less food leading to greater turnover of proteins or something, you would expect that it would work the same in all the strains. Uh, and the fact that it doesn't suggests, you know, sort of, to my mind, that it's quite possible that there is a genetic architecture that has evolved for mice to be able to respond to periods of famine uh, and to and and to change the game plan in, in some kind of regulated way. And I, I, I think that work needs to be taken further forward because it may actually give us some insight into the, into the, the makeup of the genetic architecture that, that facilitates that. So, so I, I still, you know, sort of I've been thinking about this for some time. I still retain quite an open mind. When you said that the graph showed um, a wedge shape, does that mean that um, in some species of mice they saw longevity gains from calorie restriction and in some they saw quite significant reductions in longevity? Is that what Absolutely, it yeah. I mean, these were all the same species. These were, these were all m mice, but they were different inbred strains. So they were... You know, so so yeah. I mean, but but it's important that they were all mice, um, uh, and and that um, and that the the impact on the mice, you know, was not at all consistent from one strain to the next. Whereas, so if it was a purely mechanistic, simple effect of calorie restriction equals longer life, then you would expect a, a just a straight line yeah. graph that was very there's a proportional. Well, effect. yes. I mean, it would be a, it would be like uh it wouldn't be a straight line graph it wouldn't have a slope it would be flat as it were they would all be showing the same effect um it's it's difficult to describe a graph in words <laughs> so in the field um in the research into longevity i've come across many uh different things and some look very exciting so calorie restriction seems to be a big one i've seen there's some trials going on in the use of metformin um even some suggestions of parabiosis, which I don't think have really been validated. Um, but to you, in your eyes, what are the most interesting interventions, whether they be drugs or otherwise, um, into longevity? Well, I mean, it is a very exciting time in the field of research on aging and the mechanisms that determine longevity. Um, uh, we, you know, we know from uh, studies, particularly studies with mice, that uh, you know there are things that seem to have an impact on, on, on the aging, um, you know, sort of process and profile. Um, I think we're, you know, we're still, we're still finding our way. Um, I mean, we have we have drugs that influence um, nutrient sensing, the uh, you know, sort of IGF, uh, in sort of growth factor signaling pathways uh, are, are certainly very interesting. We have um, we have drugs like rapamycin, 
which uh, you know sort of is reported to have some impacts on longevity in in mice as well. Uh, metformin, I mean, as you may know, there's quite a big uh, trial in humans uh, looking at metformin and uh, its potential role for modulating uh, the aging process in people. I mean, mo most of the data that we have available, obvious for obvious reasons, comes from animal studies, um, and the the uh, the big metformin trial is really the first of these to be done in a significant way in humans. Uh, parabiosis you mentioned is 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 interesting. I think we don't yet understand quite enough about how that works, but it will tell us uh, important things. Um, I mean, the bottom line is that uh, until we have results from the, the the metformin trial in humans, we we actually don't have clear evidence for any intervention that. Uh, you know, sort of has a, a proven impact on on rate of aging in human, apart from uh, things that you know our grandmothers could have told us about. You know, healthy nutrition, uh, exercise. I mean, we 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 one one of the one of the implications that comes from the picture of aging that the disposable soma theory gives us is that the aging process is malleable. You know, we. Aging is not hardwired into our biology in the sense that there are genes that actively regulate the length of life and turn something on that kills us. Uh, aging, the length of life is regulated by the efficiency of our maintenance and repair processes. And now we're learning quite a lot about how the interaction between the body and its environment can impact on the body's exposure to damage and also on the body's capacity to repair faults and kind of maintain itself in better condition. So, you know, this is where nutrition comes in because we know that if you have a poor diet, uh, it contains components that can actually add to the burden of damage and, uh, you know, sort of problems that our organs have to cope with. Whereas if we have a healthy diet, you know, sort of the Mediterranean diet is the diet that we all talk about, but we should remember that Japan is the longest living country in the world. So there are it doesn't have to be the Mediterranean diet. There are Asian variants on the Mediterranean diet, but but we know that diet seems to be associated with longevity. The the evidence that exercise is beneficial for healthy aging is overwhelming. Um, you know, sort of it's probably the single most important thing we can do if we want to live uh, a long and healthy life is to up uh, you know sort of uh, uh, how seriously we take uh, you know get, getting enough exercise. So all, all these things are important, but but as I say, these are things that your granny could have told you. Um, uh, what we can now tell our grannies um, uh, is that we're beginning to get some insight into how they work. Uh, so you know, we still got a lot of work to do, but we we now understand, and we can demonstrate that what was a matter of belief uh, in previous generations is now a, a matter that is you know sort of firmly founded in science. Um, but still, it's you know, it's it's not, uh, you know, it's not making use of the most recent scientific advances in understanding the biology of aging, and I think this is going to be an area of rapid development in the years to come. Um, one of the treatments uh, to add to the list that we've talked about already is the uh, you know sort of the emerging science of what's called senolytics. Um, <clears throat> uh, as we get older, we accumulate uh, what are called senescent cells in our tissues and organs. Um, 
this was the the system that I was working with way back in the 70s when I first started to become interested in aging was the phenomenon of cellular senescence. Uh, at that time, we believed that uh, cells aged and died just basically because they accumulated bad stuff. Um, we now know that senescence is a much more regulated process. Uh, you know, and some of the work that I and my colleagues did in Newcastle, you know, 10 years ago, provided a publication that really gave insight into how the entry of a cell into the senescent state is a regulated response to damage, uh, damage that could be of a variety of different kinds. So uh, we know that uh, once cells become senescent, they, they stop all division. They often uh, switch into a, a curious state, uh, which is called the uh, senescence-associated secretory phenotype, SASP. And this is an inflammatory condition. So the cells remain there within the tissue, you know, sort of flashing inflammatory signals all over the place. They can, they can convert neighboring cells into senescent cells. So it's like wildfire spreading through a forest, you know, sort of they can, they can ignite the trees around them. Um, and the, uh, the evidence is accumulating that these senescent cells have deleterious consequences in our organs and tissues as we get older. So, you know, the idea has been around for a few years that if you could somehow get rid of those senescent cells from tissues, you might be able to improve health profiles in aging and maybe even extend lifespans. So at the moment, uh, proof of principle uh, has been provided by experiments that have been done in mice, showing that if you target those senescent cells for removal, uh, you see some improvements in health and you see improvements in median lifespan. You don't, uh, you don't see much improvement, if any improvement at all, in the maximum length of life. So, you know, it's very much an open question, uh, you know, what it is that uh, is changing. And in fact, uh, uh, just last month, uh, you know, sort of I and a couple of colleagues published a paper um, looking at cellular senescence from an evolutionary standpoint, trying to bring the principles of evolutionary logic to understand what's going on with senescent cells. Um, so senolysis is, you know, is another of the areas into which we need to do research. Um, uh, and uh, and it's, it, it, it's quite a hot topic. Can I make an assumption on how you would design a, a trial to test a compound uh, for its effects on longevity? And then maybe you could just correct me on um, everything else that is wrong. Um, so if I have compound X yes. and I need to make a trial to show that it extends um, lifespan in humans by 10 years, presumably I would have to pick two groups, give one group a placebo and give the other group the compound X. Um, and then I would have to monitor them for, say, 50, 60 years to see uh, at the end of, you know, when each group died. And if I had a sufficiently large number of people, um, that would, you know, that would be compelling evidence uh, for compound X, but that's very slow. Um, so what, what are the way, firstly, is that assumption correct? Is that the only good way to do this kind of trial? And secondly, are there any quicker alternatives? Are there surrogate markers we can use? How good are they? You've put your finger on exactly the challenge here, which is the, the, the length of human life makes it quite difficult uh, to foresee early results that will confirm that some intervention will extend human life. Um, if, if you give the treatment to a person who's very, very old already, uh, so if you gave it to people in their 80s or something, uh, 
you might be able to get a result sooner. But on the other hand, it may be that you wouldn't see a result because their bodies are already sufficiently damaged by age. So if if the treatment is a potent treatment, uh, the innocent, the we know from all kinds of studies on drugs that you know the earlier you treat the greater the efficacy you're likely to deliver but then then exactly as you said you you would need to give uh, be a placebo controlled randomized clinical trial you'd need to give one group treatment another group a placebo uh, wait half a century um you know and compare the results and it, it's daunting i mean it really is daunting it's also daunting from an ethical and regulatory point of view, because if this is a drug that could have potent biological effects, and they may not all be good ones, uh, you would be giving this drug to people who are young and fit and healthy, had no underlying medical condition. Um, uh, you know, and, and that, you know, that raises regulatory challenges. So the question is, you know, how do you get around that? Um, and one possibility is, uh, as you suggested, that you have to think in terms of some kind of surrogate marker that can give you an early indication whether your drug is working or not. Um, and in order to be able to achieve that, uh, and we have to recognize that's not the same thing as proving that the treatment extends human life. You can, there's no way you can get around waiting to actually prove the outcome. But if you wanted to, for example, abandon trials that were showing no hope of progress, then you would want some earlier marker that would allow you to say, nah, you know, good idea, but not working. So for that, you need some kind of biomarker of age. Um, and then the way you would do the trial, as you suggested, you would take a treatment group, you would take a controlled placebo treated group, you would give them the treatments, and maybe after five years, you would take a blood sample or whatever, you would run it through an analysis of the biomarkers, and you'd say, ah, you know, the group with the treatment is definitely not showing this age-related biomarker change that we're seeing in the control group. And it would give you grounds to believe that you were onto something. Um, it would be lovely if we could really do that with complete reliability. Um, and, you know, the, the hunt is on for biomarkers that would make it possible. Uh, there are some, you know, sort of biomarkers that the probably the best biomarker for that process is something that's called the epigenetic clock. And this is based on looking at the epi epigenetic profiles. The interesting thing is that although it works, seems to work better as a biomarker that relates to age, we probably have rather little understanding of exactly what it is that it's reading. I mean, it's a marker that's associated with age. So it may have enormous promise, but we, we still need to, uh, we need to you know, sort of fill in the gaps in our knowledge. Um, it, 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 it's a huge area of work. Uh, you know, we're pushing forward with all speed. It just has to be said that, you know, sort of the need for this has been recognized for many years. There was a, a paper in the Lancet in 1969, uh, arguing the case for a battery of tests to measure the aging rate in humans. Uh, you know, the National Institute on Aging in the US had, I think in the 1990s, a very big multi-million dollar program, the Biomarkers of Aging program, spent a lot of money, uh, produced a lot of data, didn't really come up with anything. Now, you know, that doesn't mean that with the increased understanding and knowledge that we have now that we should be pessimistic about what's going to happen. but. 
but it's it, it's research in progress. It would be lovely if we had a kind of a well-authenticated biomarker that we could take, as it were, off the shelf and, uh, and, and apply it in trials of this kind. But what we have to do is to develop our capacity to assess biological age at the same time that we're trying to do these kind of research trials. Um, so I'm really optimistic about the potential for aging science to deliver the means to improve health and quality of life in older age. But I think the the time scale challenge that you, you, you articulated is a very big one. And remember, you know, I mean, we see this with all drug developments. You not only have to determine whether it's efficacious, you have to do things like dosage studies. So, you know, you, you working out what would be the optimum dosage, the optimum regimen for, for delivering this. If your lag time between trying it and getting the answer is a lag time of decades, it's, it's a headache. I mean, it's a real headache. In space travel, which I think is quite a similar industry or will be to the whole longevity um, industry, we've seen private companies kind of take the mantle. Yeah. So we've got SpaceX from Elon Musk. We've got Blue Origin from Bezos, uh, Virgin Galactic. Um, and I guess, you know, this trial we've just designed, not only is it very long, but I guess time is money as well. So yeah. it would be very expensive as well. So I've got two questions on this. Firstly, in my head, there would be a worry that, you know, if a pharmaceutical company was to sponsor a trial like this, they would be incentivized to pick a drug that was, you know, they could patent and, you know, charge and recuperate their money for. And they might be less interested in maybe more common off-patent drugs, uh, which are a lot cheaper. I, I actually don't know if metformin, if it's on-patent or off-patent, but, you know, just for example, say if, if there wasn't a patent on it and it was very easy to reproduce across the world, there might not actually be the incentive there for them to run that trial because they couldn't see themselves recouping the money. So I guess the first part of the question is, do you see some perverse incentives like that? And the second part is, who do you see over the next few decades taking uh, the mantle on this type of research? Do you think it's going to be the private sector or do you think it's going to be governments? I think the you know, the, the questions you've asked are important questions. One, how, how do you resource it? Um, I, I, quite a lot of the discussion at the moment is about uh, taking existing drugs that are already licensed for use and repurposing them. Um, and that's... That's attractive to, to, you know, for several reasons. Particularly because you 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 haven't got the big regulatory hurdle. It's not a new drug for which you have to prove efficacy and you know long term uh, safety. Um, but yeah, I mean these are not likely to be products that will earn the pharmaceutical companies a huge amount of money. And when you think in terms of the lifetime of a patent and the kind of time scale issue that we suggested. You know, if you if you patent a new drug and your your patent expires before your clinical trials can be completed, it's it's not financially attractive. So, yeah, I I, I think there has to be a lot of serious attention given to you know to how this might work. I mean, it may be that existing drugs will will have the benefits you know that we might hope for them. Uh, it may be that we will need entirely novel drugs. Um, it will then also raise an, uh, yeah, a, a raft of um, societal and ethical issues, you know, sort of, I mean, yeah, and, and works of fiction have been written about uh, 
you know, these kind of scenarios where, you know, sort of someone produces a drug that allows the, you know, those who can afford it or have access to it. Um, Brave New World was, uh, you know, sort of played in that kind of area, but there have been many other, many other books of that kind. So I think it's difficult. I mean, I think I think we need a serious discussion <clears throat> about how it would happen. I think we also need a much more serious discussion than you know sort of has really happened to date about what it is that we would like such drugs to do. Um, you know, we talk about you know sort of life extension, um, and yes, you know, uh, it's. It's entirely consistent with the whole progress of modern medicine is that what we're trying to do is to prevent people from dying. So, you know, sort of if we're thinking in terms of anti-aging life extension drugs, we're, you know, we're following a well-trodden pathway. But um, is purely the length of life the, the best metric for success in this kind of endeavor? Um, might we not be thinking instead about treatments that would improve health uh, i think within the field of you know sort of research on aging uh, there is a, a very proper focus now on thinking in terms of maximizing the health span uh, over and above maximizing the lifespan um, uh, that's to my mind that's absolutely the right priority but that needs to be unpacked further um, you know we actually need to think in terms of what impact this might have on our health and quality of life you know we there are multiple age-related diseases do we want to find something that will you know sort of postpone them all or are there some that we would actually you know sort of be more willing to accept than others we you know if uh, and again this you know the literature more almost than you know objective scientific discussion has sometimes played with you know the downsides of what can happen uh, if you have uh, poorly controlled poorly regulated uh, pursuit of long life itself um, I think uh, I, I think these are issues that uh, you know I have thought about a lot and written some about but I but I you know I, I think this is this is a very important area I think the you know sort of the desire to uh, to make progress in this area is completely understandable um but uh, you know we're doing something for humanity um and we need to be be clear clear what way we're going to do this i think it's sometimes a little bit easy to we, we look at the spectacular successes of uh, the um technological advances that have been made in recent decades um and we you know, sort of, we slip rather easily into thinking. Well, you know, oh gosh, we humans, we're so we're so terribly clever. You know, look at the internet, look at satellites, looking at look at this, that, and the other. Um, I think we need to harness, you know, that that cleverness to be really, really sort of incisive in our thinking about what it is that we're trying to do in the area of aging. One concept that I've read about that I wanted to ask you about in the field of aging. Um, and longevity is the longevity escape velocity. And from what I've read about this, it says that, you know, currently in research, if it takes us a decade of research to extend life by two or three years, um, once we get to the stage in which we can, every year we can extend life by one year, at that point, we've really reached the longevity escape velocity. And if we can continue that, perhaps immortality. 
Um, I mean, firstly, do, do you do you find that credible? And secondly, do do you think it's realistic that 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 will happen soon? To be to be honest, I you know, I I I think that's symptomatic of um, our obsession with immortality. Um, you know over and above more pressing and urgent goals. Um, it, it, it's interesting to read. Um, uh, I, I think it remains firmly within the, the realm of, of speculation, you know, until we show that we can actually do the basics, you know, I mean, we, you know, uh, there have been some quite um, forceful, critical analyses of the idea of escape velocity. A, a U.S. demographer, J. Olshansky, has you know sort of picked that logic apart a little bit. I don't. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it one way or the other because I think it's so far beyond what we are capable of addressing now. That yes, yes, it's fun in the way that you know sort of. I used to like reading science fiction books when I was younger, and you know, I yeah, I mean, it. There is so there is so much that we should be using our improving scientific understanding of aging to achieve, that is, you know, sort of in front of us, obviously important and hopefully achievable before we, you know, we could think about escape velocity and immortality that. But I think it's you know it's self-indulgent to spend a great deal of time on this. I mean, let's just put this in perspective. Over the course of the last two hundred years, we have doubled the average, the length of the average human lifespan. You know, we've pushed uh, survival up. We we live in a world where there are many unsolved challenges that arise from having such a greatly increased number of older people uh, within our society. We see massive social inequality. We see, you know, sort of the social gradient in health and uh, life expectancy. We know that if we live in, uh, you know, disadvantaged conditions, we're likely to fall ill with uh, multimorbidity and to die perhaps 10 or even 15 years before people who are, you know, more advantaged than us. We have proof from what happened in Germany following reunification after the wall came down. Um, you know, German life expectancy in the East was significantly less than it was in the West. Uh, improvements in living conditions that came with that brought life expectancy in former East Germany up to match former West Germany. We know what the challenges are. We know what can be done about them. And I think we should be really, really, you know, harnessing everything we can to, to be able to make these kind of improvements. Um, and they're not easy. You know, I mean, you know, uh, I, I'm quite sure that some people would criticize what I'm suggesting here by saying, yeah, yeah, we know all that stuff, but, you know, let someone else get on with it. We want to tackle the sexy question of can we make people live forever? Uh, I'd say, well, well, actually, the question of how do we reduce the social gradient in uh, healthy life expectancy is a really hard problem. Uh, you know, let's let, let's work on it. So, um, yeah. I, I I think fairness, equity, you know, sort of opportunities to ameliorate some of the conditions that reduce quality of life in older age are, are very, very important. Um, one of the things that I, I did, uh, you know, quite early on in my time at Newcastle was to start the Newcastle 85 plus study, which was a 
cohort-based study of what life was really like for people, uh, you know, sort of as they passed age 85. Um, and uh, we've found the study is still ongoing, although these were people, the study was started in 2006, so these were all people who were born in 1921. So this year that we've just started is going to be the year of their 100th birthdays, uh, and relatively few of them are still alive. But they've taught us so much about what is life what life is like for people at high age we we learned for example that you know three quarters of uh, people at age 85 have four or more uh, age related conditions but in spite of that that uh, four out of five of them rate their health and quality of life as being good very good or excellent so we need to understand some of the paradoxes that come when we look closely at what life is really like for older people so so yeah, I mean, I love the science. I love, I love the the fun of speculating about where the science may lead, uh, and I like to believe that the science will actually allow us slightly more modest, uh, you know, achievements than making people live forever um, by way of improving the quality of life at older ages and also leveling the play, playing field rather more. There's a story in the Epic of Gilgamesh where the king of the city of Uruk tragically loses his beloved friend. Um, and in that process, he goes on a journey to discover a flower that can achieve rejuvenation. Um, and in the end, he doesn't, he doesn't actually use that flower in the end. And the moral of the story is that the king has become wiser. And from that journey, he's achieved a different kind of peace. So my question to you is, if, if that life extending elixir, you know, did become available, would you take it? Um, it's an interesting question. Um, thank you for the Epic of Gilgamesh reference. I mean, I, I, I am aware of that story, but it's a beautiful example of, of, of how the question is kind of posed. And there are other wonderful examples in literature where, you know, where, where people are faced with that kind of dilemma. And I think what is interesting is what it tells us about human aspiration. I mean, I, I, literature does not it doesn't actually contain the blueprint for living but it provides us with with points on which to reflect um, and there's I, I i love the way it's it's just become a hobby of mine to try to read books and uh, see how people reflect on the aging and the experience of immortality i i, I don't think i can answer the question you know sort of clearly for myself yet. I, I, I'm getting older, but I may not be quite old enough yet. Um, I've had I've had fun in recent years. Uh, aging is a topic that has, um, you know, sort of become interesting The the Nobel Foundation, um, you know, sort of have started to organize dialogues on certain subjects. And, um, uh, and I, I've been asked four times now by the Nobel Foundation to take part in Nobel Dialogues on Aging. And what they do is they bring together, you know, sort of field experts, you know, like myself, but also with some of the Nobel laureates. And the Nobel laureates are not all people who have won physiology or medicine prizes, but they may have won the literature prize or the economics prize. And what I find is that very often the discussions we have at these events are so illuminating because they they tell us, you know, I've worked in, in a research environment and I think of these questions from a research perspective, but 
I was at an event like this in Madrid uh, a couple of years ago, and there was a Nobel laureate in literature who was making a very similar point to the one that the Epic of Gilgamesh kind of tells us. And I, I think it's, I think it's really deeply interesting. I, 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 I don't want to encourage people to be thinking all the time about old age and death, but I think we all should be thinking about our life journey. Um, and possibly the one thing that troubles me most about the obsession with, uh, you know, the quest for immortality is that, you know, it reveals a deep fear of death. Um, and uh, yeah, and I, I, I think death is going to be with us for quite a long time. Um, and I, I think, I think we all benefit from taking the time uh, and being bold enough to to think about it. I mean, I, it's it, it's it's a matter, you know, sort of that should concern us all. Um, but as I say, not all the time. Most of the time, we should just be getting on with the joy of being alive. But there is a certain joy to be found in age as well. Throughout your career, have there been any habits or ways you've approached things that you think have helped you along the way? Ooh, um, I think I've, I've benefited from uh, having a, an interdisciplinary perspective. I mean, I, you know, I, I did my first degree in maths, um, uh, and then I, then I worked across into the life sciences, training first as a biostatistician and later doing a PhD in biology. Um, and I and I think that that interdisciplinary perspective is valuable when working on a project problem as 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 complex as aging. Um, I think because I did that, I also, you know, did not kind of grow up within an established school of thought. Uh, there was no, at the time that I was taking the early steps in my career, there was really no significant community of researchers on aging. So you know, sort of. Every, everything I did, I had to discover, you know, to a significant degree for myself. I had I had mentors, you know, pe people from whom I took inspiration. But uh, yeah, but I wasn't I wasn't growing up within a, a you know an established career trajectory. Um, I think that also, you know, there, there are pluses and minuses to that, of course. But I think on balance, you know, sort of it's 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 helped the development of my career in the way that it's played out. I hope you enjoyed that episode. You can find all my links by going to bigpicturemedicine.co.uk. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, then please consider leaving a review on iTunes. Thank you.